So it is obvious that God looks at things differently than we do. And so as Jake mentioned, we welcome you to Skillman. We welcome you to this series that we have called Sinning Like a Christian as we have looked at what history has identified as the seven deadly sins. We started with anger. We moved from anger to greed and then to sloth and then to lust. And as Jake mentioned last week, gluttony evidently is quite a heavy sin, right? So this week, we're going to talk about all of those sins touch us, but it's been interesting in conversations because people have come up to me and go, you know what? I appreciate that sermon on anger, but anger is not a big deal for me. Okay. I appreciate that idea of talking about sloth, but when it comes to kingdom matters, I am very focused on what God wants me to do and how God wants me to live and to make a kingdom difference. Okay. Lust is not a difficulty for me. That is not how I am tempted. I got it. But this morning, we come to one that touches every one of us. Now, on our board, we have the word promotion. And promotion is not a bad thing. In fact, promotion is a very good thing. It's how we get to find out information about lots of different things. But when promotion goes the wrong direction and when it becomes all about us, let's try it this way. The Olympic sport is, can I get down this low and get back up? It becomes pride. And so I want us to look at pride this morning. How does pride affect us? What does pride do with us? As, as the video kind of illustrated, the Sermon on the Mount gives us some insight into what Jesus says is not only important, but what it means to be kingdom center. He basically is making the point that actions reflect what we do. It's the heart who reflects who we are. Amen? Our actions demonstrate the things that are important to us, but it's the heart that Jesus is after. And I would like to say to all of us that pride is one of those things that absolutely damages our heart. It keeps us from being everything God has called us to be, to do the things that He wants us to to do, but more importantly, to become the person that God calls us to become. A middle-aged woman was having a fight with her husband. It was pretty rough. And she looked at him in just almost that that moment of intensity. And she says, the only reason our marriage has survived is we are both in love with the same person. You. Now, that's a line you can use later on. But I would encourage you to use it gently as you go along. The problem with pride is it has a great big eye right in the middle of it. And it's a problem that's existed forever. Genesis chapter 3. I want to look at the first seven verses. The story is familiar, and yet the power of the story is intrinsic to our discussion this morning. 
The scripture says, now the servant was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, and look at how cleverly he just twists it a bit. You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be just like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took some of the fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here's what I want us to understand, and here's what I want us to consider. And I want you to see if you agree with the theory that I'm going to kind of put out this morning. I believe that pride is at the root of all of this. That pride is one of those things, if if you really boil it down, it comes back to pride. In fact, Christian theologians throughout the years have talked about how difficult and how hard it is for us to get a grasp on what we do with pride. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads us to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. I want you to hear that. The complete anti-God state of mind. Now, does that mean that I shouldn't be proud of my accomplishments? I shouldn't take pride in what happens? As we said, anything that has a, a, a touch of goodness can be perverted and make it into something it never, ever was intended to be. So why is pride so deadly? Why does pride destroy us so much? Here's the first reason. I've got a couple. Pride distances us, first of all, from others. When we're in the midst of those I moments, when our heart has become centered on those moments, pride takes over. And when pride takes over, other people get shut out. A Boy Scout, a politician, and a preacher were all on the same small plane. The pilot comes in and he says, I have some terrible news. The plane is going to crash. I've had both engines fail. I cannot get the engines to start again. We have four people on this plane and three parachutes. And he said, look, I know, I understand, I am the pilot. I should go down with this ship. But I have small children at home and a wife who loves me, and I've just got to be there to raise my kids. And he grabbed one of the packs, and out the plane he jumps. The politician says, you have to understand, he says this to the Boy Scout and the preacher, I'm the smartest man in the world. 
obviously not involved in the politics of today. We understand that, but I digress. I'm the smartest man in the world. He said, and the world needs me, so therefore I am going to survive. He grabs a pack and out he jumps. The preacher and the Boy Scout are left there together. The preacher looks at the Boy Scout and says, Son, I've lived a lovely, wonderful life. He said, I know who my Redeemer is, and I know where my salvation lies, and I am not worried about what's going to happen. As a matter of fact, I think things are going to be great for me in glory. You grab one of those packs, and you go on, and you take it. And the Boy Scout said, relax, preacher. The smartest man in the world just jumped out of the plane with my backpack on his back. (laughs) The truth of the matter is, nobody wants to be around a prideful person. Nobody. It's why Peter tells us in 1 Peter to clothe ourselves in humility because humility is the antithesis of pride. But what does it look like to be humble? Is it Mac Davis's definition of humble? I'm going to use two illustrations this morning that are going to date me essentially as being older, okay? The first one is a song that came up in the 1970s by Mac Davis who said, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. Oh, to know me is to love me. I am one great, great man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Now, we know some humble people like that, right? Some folks that get caught up in the midst of that moment, right? But I think humility is a little different than that. See, C.S. Lewis, and I'll quote him again because I think it's so profound, says, True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. So the problem with pride is it distances us from others. But there's a second problem with pride. And that problem is it distances us from God. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. We see it throughout all of Scripture. In fact, the children of Israel are about to enter the promised land. And Moses has this concern that ought to be a concern for anybody as an individual, anybody that has a family. It ought to be a concern for churches, corporations, anyone that fails to remember that God is the reason that we have opportunity. That God is the reason that we have blessing in our life. And so Moses gives this warning to the children of Israel as they're about to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, By my power and by the might of my hand I have gotten this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and you go after other gods and and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. 
It's a warning to hang on to. Anytime we start to believe our own press and think it's about me, what I want, what I think, what I believe, how I think it ought to be, anytime the word I shows up in front of any of that, it's a moment to pause and take a step back. Anytime that I start to believe that if I've got some good going on in my life, it's because of the things that I have been able to do through my education, through my hard work, through all of those things that we tend, remember the video, that we tend to celebrate. But it's Jesus who says God's economy works in a completely different way. Way. Psalm 138 6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. So, how do we solve the problem of pride? I think there are a couple of things to consider. Here's the first one If we're going to solve the deadly sin of pride, we need perspective. It's important that we gain some perspective. Marcus Aurelius was one of the great rulers of all of Rome. He was a Caesar, much in the same vein of Julius Caesar, though he does not get quite the credit that Julius Caesar got. He was an incredible statesman. He was very accomplished as a spokesman. He had great ability and he had great, great power because as a Caesar, he was considered deity. Every time he spoke, it was like hearing the voice of God. But Marcus Aurelius understood about himself, he was no God. He did not know anything that was supernatural. He just had opinions about things that he wanted to share with the people. And so to keep himself from becoming too proud, he had a servant stand up behind him every time he was about to make a public pronouncement. You know what the servant kept saying to him in his ear? Remember, you're just a man. Remember, you're just a man. Remember, you're just a man. What does it take for us? What does it take for us to realize that our ways are not always God's ways? That our opinion is not always God's opinion? That our way of looking at things isn't always God's way of looking at things. What gives us that kind of perspective so that we can move forward? Do you remember when Moses meets God in the burning bush and he wants to know what to do if the people don't accept what he is telling him to do? And you have this amazing interchange in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. It says, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the children of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name 
forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. We need to keep perspective. His name is I am. I found this picture that I want to show you. It is a picture of the galaxies that I think is pretty interesting to take a look at. Do we have that? I guess not. Oh, no, there it is. Okay, good. So you see this picture of the galaxy that's there. And this is the Milky Way. I want you, if you can read the very top of that, it says, you are here. By the way, that happens to be all of us on planet Earth. That's where all of us are. Now, you need to also understand that that is one of billions of galaxies that God, by the spoken word, created into existence as he made them. And yet so often, we, in our own way of thinking at that will things, believe that we have the capacity, that we have the power, that we have the knowledge, and that we have the know-how to run the universe quite well. Except our name is not I am. There is only one whose name is I am. I'm, I told you there were two illustrations where I'm going to date myself. One comes from Saturday Night Live. I am old enough to remember when Saturday Night Live first started. Okay? I was in high school, 1976. When Lorne Michaels had gone to the Second City Comedy Club in Chicago, had found these incredible improvisational comics and decided to bring them to New York City and they were going to have this show that was going to be live from New York every Saturday evening after the late news that took place. Two of his most accomplished comics he decided to put into a bit that still continues to this day called Weekend Update, starring Jane Curtin and, as you see, Chevy Chase. Don't you love that 1970s hair right there? Halfway down the ears, kind of got the bowl thing going all the way through. And here's how Chevy Chase would start every bit that he did when he did Weekend Update. He would say, welcome to Weekend Update. I'm Chevy Chase and... You're not. That's how he began them all. I'm Chevy Chase. Guess what? You're not Chevy Chase. See, I think Chevy Chase had an important perspective that you and I need. His name is I am. Seriously? If I'm honest about what my name is, My name is I am not. There is a God and I am not him. There is a God and if I need to break the news to you, I will. You're not him either. But so often we put ourselves in the place of acting like we are. That we know what's best. That we understand what ought to happen. That we are absolutely in charge of everything. And if it doesn't go that particular way, oh my. 
It's when promotion goes to pride and when pride starts being the ruler of anything that's going on, we got trouble all the way through. I'm not in charge of the universe. I'm not in control. I'm not the solution. I'm not the savior and I'm not the sinner. I'm not God. And neither are you. So how do we solve this deadly problem of pride? We got to have perspective, but here's a second one. We got to take action. For Three years, the disciples followed after Christ. Would you agree they got to see some incredible things, some amazing things? The dead were raised. The lame began to walk. The blind began to see. The deaf began to hear. The mute began to speak. And they saw all of these things. Now, these are 12 men who are walking along with Jesus on a daily basis for three solid years. And let me tell you something. You get a group of men together, you know what happens? We start to share a brain. And they did. And they started having what I call a five-year-old conversation. One of them looks at the other and he says, Hey, who do you think is going to get to sit on the right hand? Who do you think is going to sit on the left hand? Who's going to be the big dog? Who's going to be the less of the big dogs? How is the order going to kind of work out? Because after all, that's big news and that's important. And we need to kind of consider how all that's going to work. And Jesus listens to this conversation. And at the end of it, he says, If you want to know who's going to be the greatest, here's how you check it. Let the one who serves the most. That's the person that's the greatest. The one that gets out of themselves, that goes out of their way, that moves beyond what is required and just starts serving because that's what kingdomites do. That person's the greatest. Seven days. Seven days later... The disciples find themselves in an upper room. It's going to be the last supper, though they don't know that's what it's going to be. Jesus and his disciples gathered together to have the Passover one with the other. In a few hours, they're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be taken, tried illegally. He's going to be paraded before both Pilate and Herod. He is going to be scourged and he's going to be beaten. And eventually he's going to be crucified. But before all of that happens, they have this last gathering together. Seven days before, Jesus has said, the one who is the greatest is the one who's the servant. And yet they all sit there reclined at table because they aren't a rich band of folks. They don't have the money to pay for a servant to wash feet. And John 13 tells this story of them kind of looking at each other going, yeah, I'm not washing his feet. I'm not washing his feet. I'm tired of Peter's big mouth. I'm sure not washing his feet. And then you see this amazing thing happen. Jesus takes off his cloak. He girds himself with a towel. 
He grabs a basin of water and he starts with the one that's going to betray him and he comes to the one that's going to doubt him and then he comes to the one that's going to deny him three times who says, you're not going to do this. He says, if I don't do this, you have no part of me. And then he says, well, okay then, wash me completely. Just give me a bath. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. And at the end of it, he looks at all 12 of them and he says, do you know what I've done for you? If I, your teacher and Lord, and willing to take my cloak off, gird myself with a towel, get a basin of water, and wash your feet. So you must be willing. It's about moving out of the position of prominence and moving in to the position of service. Catch this. The guy whose name tag actually reads, I am, girds himself with a towel to wash the feet of the guys whose name tag reads, I am not. And he calls us to do the same thing. C.S. Lewis, True Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Paul said it a different way in Philippians chapter 2. His words resonate with us. We read them and say them a lot, but I don't want us to miss the weight of them. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The great I am empties himself of the glories of heaven so that he could personally identify and create the moment of salvation for everyone whose name is I am not. Everyone. And every time we see that happen, every time we see an individual who is willing to get outside of themselves, who is willing to serve almost with reckless abandon because it's what the master did. Listen, you and I are called to a pathway of service and we are called to a pathway of suffering. 
This Christian life is not always going to be easy. It's not always going to have everything that you always agree with. There are going to be moments that are difficult. There are going to be moments that are trying. All of that is going to be a part of our life. And when we finally decide it's not about me, it's why Rick Warren, when he started The Purpose Driven Life, said... It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about what God is doing in the world and how we are partnering with him in those things. I've been rereading Eric Metaxas' book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In 1937, Bonhoeffer wrote a a classic work called The Cost of Discipleship, which was a repudiation of pride-filled and comfort-filled Christianity. He was a man that had come to the United States, was a guest lecturer, but decided it was more important for him to go back to his homeland of Germany and suffer with his people than it was to live his life in relative comfort here in the United States as a guest lecturer. I want you to hear words from the cost of discipleship. He says... Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. The grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That Jesus who emptied himself and poured himself out so that he might identify with all of us. He is incarcerated because of his views that what Hitler was doing to the Jews was a moral wrong. And he was put in jail. And while incarcerated, he wrote, God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. He is weak and powerless in the world. And that is precisely the way, the only way which is, in which he is with us and helps us. Scripture makes it quite clear that Christ helps us not by virtue of his omniscience, but by the virtue of his weakness and his suffering. The Bible directs man to God's powerlessness and suffering for only the suffering God can help. Listen to me. Is there any wonder that Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says, it is in our weakness, it is not in our accomplishments, it's not in the things that we do well, it's not in all of those things, it is in those moments of weakness that God is magnified and that we can readily identify with what God is doing because it becomes evident to all. If change is occurring, change is occurring by the power of God and not by our own might. It takes the power out of us being able to take credit for it. And that's... The thing that we have to understand, and that's why his story resonates with us. It's why we understand it so well. Eventually, Bonhoeffer was transferred to Tegel, to Buchenwald, and then to the extermination camp at Flossenburg. On April 9th, 1945, one one month before Germany surrendered, 
he was hanged with six other resistors. A decade later, the doctor that witnessed his execution at the camp describes the scene this way. The prisoners were taken from their cells and the verdict of the court-martials read out to them. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in just a few seconds. In the almost 50 years I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. You want to know how to deal with pride? His name is I Am. My name is I am not. But the great I am surrendered the glories of heaven to come and identify with me. And I have to be willing to empty myself and to pour my life out for the sake of the gospel into the lives of other people because that's what it means to walk in the dust of my rabbi. Because that's what he did. And we are called to do no less. So this morning as our elder couples gather around the room for prayer, the prayer of the people station is there for you as well. Here's an opportunity. See, this one, this one gets all of us at some point or another. It gets us. And we have to be constantly reminded by taking a different perspective and by taking action in doing the things that Jesus did.